1: and 365-day returns. This is the Cork Today replay
2: on
3: C103 you as we welcome you along and it feels like when I went away just on a week's break I went away and it was in the middle of autumn and it's like I've come back and we're in the wilds of a winter the way the weather turned at last week and this ongoing rain and then I was just saying to John Paul we're playing Christmas ads as well suddenly we're into the depths of uh, winter talking to John Paul thank you to John Paul for sitting in right across last week and actually I saw a lovely WhatsApp that came in uh, just before nine from Geraldine O'Shea to say good morning to John Paul. Congratulations on the wonderful job you've done on the airways last uh, week. So thank you, Geraldine, for that. And thank you for your kind words to uh, John Paul. And John Paul is taking your calls this morning on 0818 103, 103 And I had a lovely uh, break. It was a pity about the weather. Uh, we spent the week in West Cork and it was lovely. And there's no better or beautiful place to be. Didn't get to go out and about much, though. I have to say, we were trying to time things and do things, dodging in between showers, but it was still lovely to get away. And once again, what always strikes me when I get to spend some downtime uh, in West Cork, food is gorgeous. We were got just every night out for such wonderful meals I mean the food food in this country is incredible but I think here in Cork we are blessed with the level of restaurants and hotels that we have and long may they keep going and that's why I'm always saddened when I see some of our restaurants and bars and hotels closing and there's, there's a really really dodgy few months ahead for that industry you know as they battle with the high costs of everything but including energy costs but I mean everything that they do in bus- for every business I think it's the same everything is going up so if we can give any support at all that we can particularly to local restaurants uh, please do so it was lovely to get out and about but as I say what struck me again is it's the friendliness of the people of West Cork and those that work in the service industry they really are From the business point of view, they are their greatest asset. I know it's a beautiful part of the country to be in, but definitely for everybody in the the tourism uh, sector, their greatest asset are their staff. And you always hope that the staff are really been well looked after. So it was lovely, as I say. We were unfortunate with the weather, but sure, what can you do? It's Ireland. And when it decides to rain, it never seems uh, to stop, does it not? And actually, then last night, I was watching a programme that I absolutely adore, which is Ireland's uh, fittest family. And that was filmed during the summertime. And even though we had a reasonably good summer, we had periods of the summer that was really good. Let's just not forget there was periods of summer where it rained as well. And last night in the quarterfinal, I don't know what month of the summer it was filmed on or what day it was filmed on. But they must have got one of the most worst weather days. The rain was helting down on all of the contestants but I've already seen a text in to say Patricia would you say a huge congratulations to the Finnegan's from Ballyclaw who went straight through to the semi-final of Ireland's Fish's family last night and that's from all at uh, Dan uh, uh, Dano, Dano's the supermarket uh, supermarket and it was fantastic to watch the Finnegan's last night and of course they have Donica O'Callaghan they're Dunica's last team so he really needed them to get through to the semi-finals. and looking at the weather conditions that it was filmed in, you wouldn't want your team having to go through to an eliminator. So it really was fantastic for the uh, Finnegan. So congratulations to dad, John, uh, son, Aaron, who is 19 and then the twins. I think they're only 14, the twins, Sarah and Lauren. Uh, who are really the real stars of that particular team? But they were fantastic. So congratulations to the Finnegans. I think now I'm open to correction, but s- somebody may be able to tell us: Is there any other Cork families in with the chance of getting through to the semis or through to the finals? But they have another hurdle now; they'll have to get over the semis in order to get through to the final. But I'm really, really enjoying that program. I have to say, oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. And one thing on my week off, I try to kind of switch off from everything particularly news and whatever, so at the weekend then trying to catch up preparing to come back on uh, today and of course the ongoing problem that we have with uh, homelessness and people living in emergency accommodation that does not, that's a problem certainly that is not a going away and then to read a report in a lot of the newspapers focusing on it today that over 3% of all homes owned by city and county councils all over the country, so these are the local authority, what affectionately are called council houses, 3% of them were vacant at the end of last year. The figures are coming from the National Oversight and Audit Commission and they show when you see 3% I don't think 3% is very little but when you look at what does 3% mean? 3% means there were 4,448 local authority dwellings unoccupied last December. Nearly 4,500. Bearing in mind you know that we've got figures of is it 10,000 people are in Homeless emergency accommodation who are technically homeless and they're living in hotels and uh, B&Bs like a large number of those should be taken out of that emergency accommodation and put into these local authority uh, houses. The vacancy rate uh, is 3.2% so that it's effectively unchanged from the previous year so there was little or no improvements made year on year and this commission they do an annual review and they look at all of the 31 local authorities all over the country and they look at the number of homeless adults living in emergency uh, accommodation also as well as looking at the number of vacant property or voids, as the council liked to call them. And it showed that over that same period, the numbers of people moving into emergency accommodation rose by over 9% while the voids remained practically the same as they were from the year before. The Commission also revealed that the average time taken to relet a council house has been increasing steadily since 2018 and it now averaged almost eight months in uh, last year for 2021. So somebody hands in the keys of their council house because they've either gone on to buy their own house or they're moving to a different area so the property is handed back council take back the keys there isn't a local authority anywhere in the country that doesn't have a list of people who would Give their right arm to move into that particular house, but then that house has to be, and I accept that there has to be some kind of refurbishment work, and the house needs to be checked to make sure that it's up for sta- up to standard, so they can be relet out to somebody else. But to think that, in on average, it is taking eight months when we have a housing crisis really is galling, and in Cork City. When we look at the, the, and then look, oh sorry, looking at the figures for Cork City and County by the way, because we like to kind of keep it as, when we look at, dig into figures like this, we like to try and keep it as local as we can. Above average vacancy rates were found in Cork County 5.3% for Cork City it's 4.4% so when you total city and county together it means there is 850 council homes vacant across Cork City and County. And there will be some of the listeners this morning listening to that figure of 850 council houses nodding, saying, "Sure, Patricia, didn't I send you in a text only last month or only last year saying there's two vacant council houses in the estate where I live and many of them have been uh, vacant for many, many months. And people say there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with the houses. Why can't they be relet? And for the people who are living in the estates, they want the houses to be rented out because there's nothing worse than living beside a vacant property, in some cases a boarded up property. And we know when you get vacant properties, for whatever reason, they attract antisocial behaviour. And people prefer the idea of somebody living next door to them rather than it being a vacant property. In Cork City, uh, it's taking the council 75 weeks um, and costs an average of €26,331 to re-tenant a property. That's what they call it. That's a lot of refurbishment work. Now, are there bad tenants? Yeah. So some of the houses, you imagine, are left in really bad condition and a lot of work has to go on. But that seems like a lot of money, doesn't it, on average, to do up a house and get it ready for the new uh, tenants. But Cork City taking, on average, 75 weeks. That's over a year to uh, re-let a property. Now, I saw Sinn Féin's housing spokesperson, Owen O'Brien, he was really looking into these uh, figures and uh, he was you know what, what everybody is asking is why is the refurbishment work taking so long which well, Sinn Fains owner oh no, Brain reckons there are two reasons for it he says one is that local authorities are not restocking maintenance crews and that's leading then to them having to tender out the work this then can lead to overly bureaucratic processes in procurement which obviously that slows everything uh, down he reckons now that the department of housing must step in and say that the turnaround target should be 10 weeks and no more now a spokesperson for the department of housing they say that local authorities will always have a level of vacancies in their housing stock they say it fluctuates over time because it depends on people you know tenancies surrendering the property and the reletting stock and that it's always an ongoing process but they added that through the voids system 6,032 vacant social houses were brought back into use. That was in 2020 and 2021. So about 3,000 a year that are left vacant are done up and uh, re-let out and they reckon this year the target will be just under two and a half thousand so the target for this year is actually less what it has been for the last uh, two years but I think Owner Brin might have hit the nail on the head when he says that the local authorities themselves don't have their own maintenance crew the week before I went away on holidays we only did a piece about the outdoor staff And how outdoor staff, the maintenance department that go out and do the gullies and uh, look after our green areas and look after our graveyards we saw we actually had the numbers in black and white in front of us how they've fallen it was to do at one stage that they wouldn't allow there was an an embargo on recruiting staff but that embargo is gone so of course the maintenance staff there was always a maintenance crew in every single local authority they'd have their own plumbers they'd have their own carpenters they'd have their own electricians but many of those have retired and have left the council and haven't been replaced so therefore when a house becomes vacant and it needs to be looked at, they need to get a painter in, they need to check and make sure that all the plumbing works are up to scratch, the electrician will need to check the electrics, any other work that needs to to be done. Kitchens often have to be uh, replaced and I know that galls people when they hand back a council house to find out that a what The person who had lived in the house said was a perfectly good kitchen but that had to be pulled out in the standard kitchen uh, put back in but the council say that they are the rules and the regulations and that's what they have to abide by but there was a time when the council workers themselves would do all of that work but now of course those council workers are not available so it has to go out to tender and we know anything that is procurement and tendering And I don't know why, but it always seems to be so bureaucratic and it just seems to add to the time. And, And I do think Ona Bryn is right. That is possibly adding to why we are waiting so long for council houses to be refurbished and let out and as I say when I was reading that piece this morning it struck me that certainly for many of the listeners to this programme because many of you have contacted us over the years citing a particular area of the city or county where you live and pointing out a house that has been vacant for quite some time but quite shocking to see in Cork City Council Paul Hosford, the political correspondent is writing about in the examiner today he's saying it takes the council 75 weeks to relet a property on average at a cost of over 26000 euro per property on council houses and why they take so long to be turned around from somebody leaving the council house to the refurb being done the key's been handed over to uh, somebody, uh, someone else. Someone says on the giving out of council uh, houses and why they wait so long. And this is something that's been going on for quite some time because this listener says, my father's house has been empty since 2018. It was only given out a few months ago nearly four months later. Let people move in. Let them do them up themselves. Let them decide what way they would like to refurbish their house. They're going to be getting the money for it anyway. Yeah and particularly when you heard the figure from Cork City Council of over 26,000 is what it costs to re-tenant the property, which is, uh, is what they cost. And that's obviously that's an average figure. Some will cost more and some will cost uh, less. But I don't know how many times I have heard that suggestion from people who are living in emergency accommodation who know of a house in their area. That has been void for quite some time, maybe even boarded up and that the people themselves have gone to the council to say, just give us the keys. We'll do it up ourselves. We'll paint it. We'll do whatever needs to be done. But obviously, you're going to get into health and safety and having to check that the electrics are okay and the plumbing is okay. And I could just imagine the list of reasons as to why somebody couldn't move in and do it up themselves. But you're not the first certainly to have suggested that. But four years uh, after your father your father's house was handed back, does seem like an excessively long period of time. Thank you for your text to 0862 103 103. Christy Moore fans, uh, please take note that right across this week, we have the very first of the Christy Moore tickets to give away. Christy Moore, of course, has just announced that he is returning to play another date live at the Marquee. Anyone that has been to see Christy Moore live at the Marquee will know that Christy seems to really love this venue. And it's always one of the live at the Marquee gigs that you are guaranteed is going to get sold out. So if you're a Christy Moore fan, you've got a chance of winning tickets here uh, on the programme every day this week. Failing that I would suggest that you make sure you purchase your tickets next Thursday morning 10th of November at 9am they will go on sale through ticketmaster.ie but every day this week we will give one pair of tickets to Christy Moore live at the Marquee Saturday the 17th of June 2023 yeah, we're already talking about 2023 uh, already every day. I will play a clip of a Christy Moore song, and I will tell you when I need you to text or WhatsApp. I can give you, I can let you hear today's song, but don't text or WhatsApp me yet. But just let let you get working on which song is this by Christy Moore. And look for the spark that lights the night. Ah, work. <laughs> We're not playing the chorus of any of the songs I see. OK, I'll play that one again later on and I'll tell you exactly when to text and WhatsApp you. But just giving you the heads up. Christy Moore live at the Marquis on Saturday the 17th of June. We've got tickets every day this week to get you there. We'll have fun with that competition throughout the week. For a number of years now, lack of respite beds has been putting immense strain on families with loved ones who require these services. So to discuss what is the current situation in the Cork area, I'm joined by Labour Door Deputy for Cork East, that's Sean Sherlock. Good morning to you Sean. Good
2: morning Patricia. And,
3: and you're welcome. Did the pandemic exacerbate a service that was already struggling?
2: Uh, yes is the answer to that. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of issues around uh, respite now. Uh, I think primarily the biggest issue is the lack of availability of beds, the fact that there is still a staffing crisis going on in, in respect of uh, healthcare services, particularly in relation to nursing, uh, and the fact that there are uh, refurbishments taking place in certain centres uh, that uh, have still not been completed in line with uh, HICWA requirements and also the what I would call the underinvestment, the underinvestment of capital resources into uh, maybe certain facilities as well that could assist in providing more beds. But when I put the question to the Minister uh, last month, the question I was asking really was how many respite beds are there uh, in North and East Cork specifically. I didn't ask about West Cork so I don't have figures for West Cork but I was told that at present there are uh, 38 beds Uh, and if you take North Cork that's a breakdown then between you know, for my welfare home which is, you know, St Francis' home Chocoltra and uh, Nazareth House as well but traditionally there was always a reliance in the North on places like St. Patrick's Community Hospital, for instance, where I haven't received any figures and we don't know what the up-to-date position is there in relation to, you know, uh, a report on the meeting of Hickory requirements which were to be met and also the capital programme that was announced there in terms of uh, the refurbishment. Because that, for my community hospital, was always traditionally uh, a a magnet for people, for families in North Cork uh, for a respite bed uh, and, we, you know, there isn't clarity around what the future of that will be. But I imagine that, again, there's going to be a big challenge there because, uh, you know, of, of the staffing crisis, the recruitment crisis. But also, we do need to get clarity from the HSC as to when that will be completed mm. and when the works will be completed because and when the beds will be made available.
3: Because it was in June, I'm sure, of this year. Uh, on this very same issue. I think it was you said that the hospital respite beds was a postcode lottery. It's sounding like things haven't improved since the summer. They haven't
2: improved. And like, if you live in certain parts of the country, you'll have no problem or, or, you know, it's not as challenging to get a bed. But there's always been, or there certainly has been for the last number of years, certainly in the last four to five years, in seeking a respite bed for people in, in Cork uh, and, and that goes for East Cork as well, because it, like in Yale you've, you've apparently, sorry, uh, you have three beds available in Cushown. Care Choice is contracted then in Ballynore to provide 10 beds and Cove Community Hospital has three beds as well. So it's still not enough beds for, for everybody. And it, it always goes back to this time of the year where people have to stay in hospital for longer because there's no step-down facility for them before they go home eventually. So, for instance, you know the respite, as we know, is that in-between state where hopefully you either you, you come from the acute hospital setting of CUH into your respite, then on to hopefully home, or else if you need further long-term care, then you go there. But if we don't have enough respite beds, it means that more and more people have to stay or, or are required to stay in CUH, and, and that's these, well these are hard.
3: these are people that are ready for discharge from C- CUH. As we are, you know, we're into the winter months. We're already seeing record numbers on trolleys. So there are possibly, as we speak today, people in some of those acute beds who are ready to move on to a respite, but because there's no bed available, they're stopping somebody who's on the trolley waiting to get into that bed.
2: That's it, or the. Possibly require a level of care because there is a level of dependency there, but that if they were able to transfer into a respite facility, you could continue things such as, you know, working with your dietitian, working with your occupational therapist, your physical therapist, you know, working with all of the things that could be done in a step-down facility and does not need to be done or should not be done in an acute facility if the system was working correctly, so even though somebody may not uh, be, you know, fully uh, able to be discharged, if you had the services, the backup services in facilities at the local level uh, with the required number of beds, uh, then you could free up a lot of beds in Cuh. But you know, if if you have a family member, uh, you know, that is able to make that transition, you know, you 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 want them to make that transition because you want them to recover they themselves want to recover and they want to try and get back to their their home ultimately that's mm. the ultimate yeah, aim yeah it's here. what
3: everybody wants it's it's whatever everybody wants and just, and on just staying on respite families who are caring for special needs adults and uh, children do they almost feel like they've been forgotten about
2: well you see i i they're always the forgotten people and, and politically we have all we all have forgotten them. If, if I make that glaring, you know, uh, admission, because, but but there are ways of 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 helping everybody, Patricia. And what I mean by that is that recently I stood with, uh, you know, Section 39 workers in in St Joseph's Foundation, and thankfully now, arising from that strike action, there is, uh, you know, a move to try and get greater recognition for se- Section 39 workers, because this all feeds into care for people, uh, all of our citizens. And what you need is that transition where, for instance, places like Cooling's House needs to be staffed, it needs to be resourced. If that's not being staffed, that has a knock-on effect for families where uh, you know where, where that little bit of respite is, uh, is needed. And until such time as we treat this with a greater degree of urgency, then the, con- the, the problem is going to continue. It's going to uh, persist. So we do need to make sure that there is a supply of beds that's the primary aim and that's why i keep raising this issue because until such time as we have greater capacity built into the system and even if that's contracted beds but if you are if the state is contracting a bed from a private entity or or, or an entity that is run by a, under a charitable status for instance then it needs to make sure that it provides the necessary resources What is the point in having somebody in an acute setting if they can step down into a a respite bed and then continue to avail of all of the services, as I say, like occupational therapy, like uh, dietetic advice, Orthotics, all of the things that go with that in terms of helping somebody to get back to the full of their health.
3: Yeah, and we know it costs so much more to keep somebody in an acute setting than it does. Than than it does. listen, uh, Sean, we leave it there. Thank you for that. And uh, thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, That is Labour Dole Deputy for Cork East, uh, Sean Sherlock, 0818 103 103. John Paul's taking your calls. You can text or WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. And actually, there was a call in earlier And I don't know if anyone has advice for this listener or knows a way around this, but Iris was on to us and she's talking about patients uh, who have additional needs, mobility needs, who need to travel. Iris is in the West Cork area, but needs to come to the city for hospital appointments. And the issue she wants to raise is the lack of accessible toilets. For somebody with mobility issues, she says on the journey from West Cork into the city, you'll see baby changing uh, rooms. There will be wheelchair toilets. She accepts that there are wheelchair toilets that you can find. But in Iris's husband's case, he needs the use of a hoist uh, in order because he's unable to stand. uh, And there are no hoists available in any of the disabled toilets. That Iris has accessed with her husband. Now, she said she has lobbied local TDs, but hasn't heard anything back. But she's, you know, contacted us this morning because she can't be on her own. There's got to be other people who need a hoist in which to get the the loved one they're caring for from their wheelchair onto the toilet. And if it's an appointment that has to be made, you know, you travel out of West Cork, head to this appointment. and you can't always say to the person, can you wait until you get home where well, we have the hoist in order to use the loo? Has that been an issue for others? Is anybody got advice for Iris? as to how she can get around that situation. 0818 103 103. Our lines are open. Court
0: today
1: on C103.
4: With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. C-M-I-G dot I-E.
3: And I can see questions coming in for Annelise Driscoll. Keep those coming. She'll be joining us a little bit later on on the programme. We were talking about council houses and in particular the delay with somebody handing back the keys to a council house and then the council doing up that property, getting it ready to hand it out to a new tenant. And bearing in mind, we have we have we ever had so many people on council housing lists. Some of them, some of them are in rented accommodation and are always terrified they're in rented accommodation, that the landlord will suddenly want the property back as they want to sell it or they want to move back in. But added to that, we've got people who've had to leave their rented accommodation. They're living in emergency accommodation, and we have, as we speak, Families raising children in hotel rooms desperately waiting to get one of these council houses. So it's really frustrating when you hear of almost four and a half thousand council houses at the end of last year were unoccupied. Um, and the turnaround time for for all over the country just seems to be getting longer instead of shorter, and it really is frustrating. And one of the reasons being put forward, and I would have to agree. I think Ono Brin from Sinn Féin is possibly right, is because there is a lack of maintenance crews. Within local authority, the people that would go out and physically do the work to do up the property, to get the property ready in order that it could be rented out and the keys handed over to somebody else. That's prompted somebody to say, uh, Patricia, listening with interest to your piece on the council houses and the refurbishment, and I'm understanding everything that you're saying, but what about... The people that are living in the other council houses and some of these need work and attention. These are tenants who are paying their rent week in, week out. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine lives in an estate... There were about 14 other council houses in the estate. And when the houses were built, they had the old wooden style window frames over the years, as happens to those window frames. They have become rotten. The weather now is coming in through them, the wind blowing through them, the rain coming in. Uh, This person and I'm sure the rest of the tenants in the other 14 uh, houses have been on to the council for at least three years now pointing out the condition of the wooden window frames and nothing has been done. They just keep telling them there isn't a budget for it this year. That's all well and good. But after three years, it really isn't good enough, in my opinion. Thanking you. And that's from a North Cork listener. I don't know what part of North Cork that listener is contacting us from. We have looked at that issue before in other council estates and got on to the council and at times we were told oh, that particular estate is going to be done next year because there is uh, a refurbishment scheme going on where council houses, I mean, if you think we have the Greens in power, part of the coalition, they're all into retrofitting homes, making sure that we're not wasting energy, that there, all of our houses are properly insulated and that we have the correct windows because there's nothing worse than lighting an, an open fire or putting on your central heating, be it gas or be it oil. And then half the heat is going out the windows and doors because the windows and doors are falling out. And if you're in a council property, you know, you're paying your rent. And I'm assuming that this particular housing estate, you know, The people have been living in those houses and when they first moved in, there was the window frames that are now falling apart. It really isn't good enough. But, you know, we always say to people when they're in situations like that, keep on to the council. Keep reminding them of your housing estate. Keep reminding them of the state that the windows are in. Contact your local councillors. Make your local councillors aware of how bad the window frames are. You know, I'm I'm a great advocate For the person that shouts the loudest and the squeaky wheel and all of that, so keep on to it, and and hopefully. But it is it is shocking, particularly now when we have an energy crisis going on, uh, to be living with windows that are in really bad condition. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three, and Cork County Councilors want to open the fifty million euro. Bottle Hill Landfill Site and once and for all use it but use it as a major centre for recycling waste particularly for materials generated by the construction industry. Joining me is Fine Gael Councillor Anthony Barry who is Chairman of the Council's Environment Climate Action and Biodiversity uh, Committee. Good morning to you, Anthony.
5: Good morning, Patricia, and and this pleasant morning.
3: Ah, unreal. Oh, we're just, is it ever going to stop, we're asking ourselves. Anyway. Uh,
5: We're paying for our summer.
3: Yeah, we are indeed. Now, at the moment, where does waste from the construction industry that's generated here in the County of Cork, where does that go to?
5: See, the crazy thing about this, Patricia, is that a lot of material, by the way, an awful lot of material that could be recycled and reused if if we had the proper legislation and the proper, um, I suppose, direction from the EPA, Um, now it's moved to to licensed sites that are in Waterford and I think there may be one in Limerick as well so obviously the costs generated by this are huge Um, and I think what we were looking at first is that we we look at this facility that we have in Bottle Hill which by the way um, there are issues there as well because unfortunately that facility is only licenced to take separated uh, municipal waste Uh, We're talking about a different material here obviously if there's construction C&D and That license is also expiring in 2025, so we would have to review that entire licensing process and also the material being used. But I suppose what we should be looking at, and I think we had a motion in there from the SBC a couple of weeks ago, really looking at how can we recycle and reuse as much material as possible on site and let's not be taking the material, if possible at all, off-site. But to do that, we need the EPA to get the finger out and start looking at how how we can get the legislation uh, brought through and the laws brought through that will allow that.
3: And at the moment, is there anything going on in Bottle Hill?
5: Not really, except uh, the maintenance costs associated with it. Um, I know crazy, there was an application it was... It should look I suppose Patricia when you look back in hindsight if we all knew at the time I mean I do remember because I was in Carrick Community Council at the time that the city were to build the MRF that's the separating and recycling facility yeah. and uh, they were to provide that and I know it was being looked at uh, in the city dump that they had at the time and then it was being moved down to Rossmore here in Carrick because I remember being dealt with that was the MRF and then the material that couldn't be recycled anymore or taken any further was to we bought the Battle Hill, but we all know how this has changed completely, and that landfill is now bad water, and rightly so. We should recycle as much as possible. Um, so the demand in the interim for uh, landfill capacity just dropped off a cliff. To be honest with you, um, at the time we didn't have that, but the council were left with this huge bill for this facility that was put in place, and ever since then we found ourselves in a situation of an annual maintenance fee. Plus the original cost and interest charges attached to that facility, and nothing happening there.
3: It's a total white elephant. It it it, it really is. So we would. So permission will be needed from the Environmental Protection Agency. And and because we're hearing so much about the circular uh, e- economy, that construction waste ultimately could be used somewhere else here in the county.
5: Of course. Well, even on site, Patricia, because a lot of these sites you have will say particularly brownfield sites, where you would have buildings and, you know, a lot of concrete material that if it's crushed, segregated and kept pure rather than having it contaminated on site, it could be used on site. I mean, how many times do we just, but the easiest thing to do for architects and engineers ah look, knock it, take it off site, uh, get rid of it and we'll bring in virgin material into the site. And I mean, what it means is that people have to, you know, think outside the box here, use the material that's there, recycle it and reuse it insofar as possible. But the EPA are the ones that are, you know, putting the laws that govern that and we need them to, to get on board here and, and provide that facility. But, but, but,
3: but, but anything that couldn't be used on site could be ideally brought to Bottle Hill, crushed and then could be used.
5: That is what you would hope for, yeah. and segregated. There would be materials uh, that um, that obviously can't be used on site. A certain percentage. So, insofar as possible, we need EPA to put in place uh, the facility to reuse as much material on site. And for any material that's not, then preferably, uh, it's crazy moving such material to Waterford Limerick and the costs associated with that. The problem we do have with Bottle Hill. Is that if you open that site, it has to be viable because obviously the costs with opening that site are going to uh, increase um, in, to match that into opening up the site. And on top of that, you will uh, you will end up in the situation that you, the licensing issues around the Battle Hill site, which are expiring in twenty twenty five, will have to be all reviewed as well. So there's there's a lot of work on both sides.
2: Yeah, but it yeah. is criminal
5: to see a site. I, I don't know. Have you seen the site, in Battle Hill? I mean, it it is actually prepared for the municipal base Well, I, well I,
3: I remember I mean it, it's, it's certainly well over I would say uh, 10 years ago seeing photographs of it when it was ready to go and nothing happened uh, and at that stage it was looking like it was going to be put on hold but uh, mm. little did we ever think when all the discussions started on Bottle Hill that it would never actually open I also saw at the, at the, the last week's uh, meeting of Cork County Council you um, want the council to provide more recycling opportunities at civic immunity sites
5: yeah, well, you see, the the whole idea, I think, what we're looking at here is is there's no such thing as waste, and and I think this is what we need to to get into our heads. I mean, you see, and the, if you go to the civic community sites, and you see what people are throwing away, and and I know an awful lot of stuff is reused and is recycled and goes back into um, to uh, I would say the the whole process of being uh, reused again. But there is an amount of material, Patricia, that is not. And we need to segregate segregate that out as early as possible uh, and reuse it, again, on on site and maybe use it at an earlier stage. uh, And we just can't have the waste that we have. And it's amazing how much material can be recycled.
3: Yeah, and with you know cop Twenty Two going on, and talk about the environment, the, you know it all, it all ties in uh, to it. That we all we all need uh, to do more, but we need to make things as easy as possible for people in order to be able to uh, recycle or upcycle. Okay, Anthony, will will. Uh, keep us informed on this particular one. A lot of people will have a keen interest uh, in it and hearing more about it. But in the meantime, thank you for that and thanks for joining us on the programme. Good morning to you. That is uh, Fine Gael Councillor Anthony Barry.
4: You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed.
3: John in Kilcommon who is raising his fears around health and safety at petrol uh, stations. Now, he's not directly tying it in with what happened in in Cressla, but he was saying in the aftermath of that tragedy in, in County Donegal we all have to uh, learn lessons and I, God, I was only watching on the news yesterday their, their month's minds it's a month at the weekend since that dreadful dreadful tragedy in County Donegal and those families just trying to pick up the pieces and get on with their lives your, your hearts will be broken for them and they, this, the, their, some of their month's minds masses were on at the weekend so maybe that's a put it into John's uh, mind and and while we're still waiting to find out what happened in uh, Kressler, he says that he has noticed that at all filling stations he says this is right around the, the country he is wondering what kind of health and safety assessment are done at our filling stations he feels so strongly about it that he feels that every single petrol station should should have petrol pump attendants. Remember the good old days where you drove up in your car and the petrol pump attendant said how much you wanted, fill her up or give me 20, give me 30 euro worth and they would give you the petrol or the diesel. He reckons we need to go back to that. And the reason for it is John has noticed, now I don't know over what period of time, but he started to see more and more people smoking while they're filling up their petrol or diesel. So they get out of the car. They they were having a cigarette, obviously, when they pulled up to the petrol station. So they get out, open up the petrol hub, diesel, you know, take the thing off the hub cap off, whatever it's called, and put in the nozzle. And they continue smoking. How stupid is that? Uh, John reckons that they're, the way to, to stop that will be to have petrol pump attendants that will put extra costs though will it not on the garages and then obviously the obvious question is well, what about a self-service station there are more and more 24 hour self-service petrol and diesel where you go in and you pay for it on your credit card and uh, there's nobody around he was saying for any of those self-service places he reckons there should be massive signs saying no smoking and they should be up at all petrol stations I'll have to take a look now the next time I am filling up with at the the garage I'll have to take a look and see I'm sure there are signs I would have thought you wouldn't even need a sign to say no smoking I thought the utter stupidity of filling up your car or your van and to have a cigarette in your hand at at the same time it's complete stupidity I don't even know if a sign saying no smoking would it even get through to somebody who would be that stupid maybe I'm wrong your thoughts welcomed on that would you agree with uh, John that we need to look at health and safety and do we need to go back to having petrol pump attendance 0818103103. 103. Remember Iris was on to us in the last hour. Her husband has mobility issues and she lives in West Cork and when she needs to go to the city to bring her husband to and from hospital appointments she's having a problem in that she can't find a wheelchair accessible. Now, there are wheelchair accessible toilets she's not saying that there are none on the entire journey but she would need a hoist as her husband is a, not, unable to stand so he needs to be hoisted from his wheelchair onto the toilet and uh, she can't find any, anywhere. Between West Cork and the city, and she's on to she says on to local TDs to see if they can sort it out. But she's not; she hasn't heard back yet. Somebody has made a suggestion. This is Jared, one of our listeners listening to us in London, uh, to say on the hoist uh, problem with wheelchairs. Jared is just putting this out there as a suggestion. He said, "Could a wheelchair not include some kind of like a potty, almost like a commode, for situations like that that Iris uh, describes?" Now Jared says, "I'm not in the know." Uh, and he sa- said, my suggestion might be absolutely a rubbish idea, but would it not help in a situation like Iris's husband would find himself in? And I'm not in the know either, Jared, so I don't know. But maybe it's something that could be uh, could be looked at. Thank you for that. Um, and nice to have you tuning in in uh, London. Audrey was on about council houses and the fact that they're taking so long to be turned around. Uh, listening to you, why do why do the council not give the houses out to the people that are on the housing list? and let them do them up themselves. And then what they could do is don't charge them rent for a period of years to make up the shortfall between what the tenant paid out in doing up the house and then, you know, when it's paid off, then they can start paying uh, rent. I know that people will say... Council will come back and say oh it's an insurance issue and, and that's what it's about and she you couldn't, you couldn't do that, what about insurance but maybe some kind of an insurance policy could be looked at I, I do think Audrey you're not on your own a lot of people are suggesting that and maybe when it comes to like electrical works or plumbers that the person who moves into the house can employ a plumber or an electrician and you know wouldn't they come with their own insurance uh, as well. I think What a lot of people seem to be saying is we sort of need to just think outside the box when it comes to it comes to this. There's got to be other ways around it. I think that's basically what people are uh, saying. And then we got this text in from Pat, who really is upset at the moment because we did reach out to Pat to see if they wanted to join us on air. But they literally are just so upset by what has happened. Hi, Patricia. Just would like to let your listeners know that there is a scam text doing the rounds at the moment, claiming to be from the HSC, It's saying that you are a close contact for COVID-19 and because of that, you need to apply for antigen tests. They then look for your bank details for delivery payment of the said antigen tests. Unfortunately, said Pat, I got caught out with this scam and I've ended up losing two €1,000. So I'd just like to alert you listeners to what is a very, very nasty scam. And I'm distraught by it, especially leading up to Christmas. Oh, Pat, my heart just breaks for you. That particular scam has been going around, I think, almost since COVID started, particularly since the antigen tests became available from the HSC and the HSC were sending out free antigen tests uh, to people if you applied. And when you applied, there wasn't a delivery cost. But of course, the scam artists decided, oh, well, the HSC are not advertising that part of it. Let's see if we can scam people. You just have to be so careful. Now, I'm assuming, Pat, you've contacted the bank and all of that, because what can often happen with some of the scams, I'm not saying it's going to be the case with you, Uh, you you can get money back from the banks so I'm I'm hoping that you've been in contact with with the bank but it's just showing and I know whenever we call out scams like that we inevitably will get somebody saying everybody knows that's a scam Patricia why are you mentioning that everybody knows to delete that and I keep saying to people no there are people who for whatever reason didn't hear when I was last talking about it weren't aware that it was a scam and the scam artists now are getting so good at these scams, that they can make it look like it has come directly from the HSC. We've seen, for example, banking scams that have come out. And if you look, if you go on your phone it will be on the same thread of previous texts that you've genuinely had from your bank. That's why, in all cases, you never click on any link that you receive by uh, text messages. But my heart goes out to you, Pat. But as I say, I'm assuming, and I really hope, that you have contacted your uh, bank. And hopefully, by contacting the bank, you may, in some way, be able to get that money back. But to lose €2,000, that is a lot of money, you are right with the cost of living crisis that's going on and coming into what is probably the most expensive time of the year for most of us. My heart goes out to you. 0818 103 103. John Paul's taking your calls. You can text or WhatsApp to 0862103103. 103
0: 103. C103 Jobs. The
3: Hibernian Hotel in Mallow. They currently have openings for full and part time bar staff. CVs please to info at hibernianhotelmallow.com. Osborne Recruitment are recruiting for an accounts assistant slash bookkeeper to join an established and well-known company that's based here in Mallow. CVs please to Karen.obrien at osborne.ie. Dano Supervalue, they're looking for a fresh food manager in Mallow. Email your interest to 344 slash mallow slash hr at supervalue.ie. And Woodbrook Family Practice, they're in Newmarket. They're looking for a medical secretary/slash receptionist. To apply, email medicalsecretary987 at gmail.com. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie/forward slash jobs for more. This is. C103.
4: Court
1: today on C103
4: with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. cmig.ie.
3: According to figures, liability insurance claims have dropped by 44% yet premiums have risen by 16% over the past year. The Alliance for Insurance Reform have accused insurance companies of taking businesses for a ride and they want the government to get serious with the industry. Peter Boland is director of the Alliance for Re- Insurance Reform mm. and Peter uh, once again joins me. Good morning to you, Peter.
6: Good morning,
3: Patricia. Always oh, oh, a pleasure to have you on the programme. Now, new Judicial Personal Injuries Guidelines, they were introduced last year. Is Piab clearly showing that there has been a reduction in awards because of these guidelines?
6: Absolutely. And just come back to your opening comment, not only are insurers taking uh, policyholders for a right in this, but they're taking government for a right and the general public on this because it could not be clearer at this stage. Um, since we started talking about this issue, uh, we have always maintained uh, that the insurers were correct in saying that the cost of claims drove the cost of insurance and the Central Bank constantly backs that up in their research now. So we know that if we can get the cost of claims down, uh, then premiums should come down and uh, that is exactly what has happened on the motor insurance side uh, but not on liability. So what we're looking at at the moment is that since 2016 the total number of personal injury claims in the country has dropped consistently so it wasn't just down to covid even before that the number of claims was dropping and now through the work of piab we're seeing the cost of individual claims dropping dramatically to reflect the uh, judicial guidelines which the judiciary put in place so like i say that's been reflected as it should in motor insurance premiums so uh, we're looking at an average reduction on policy cost of 10 percent this year on private motor insurance and since 2016 overall Uh, the cost of motor insurance has come down by about 42%. And that's what we expected. It's not happening on liability. So the kind of insurance that small businesses, community groups, voluntary organisations, sports clubs, cultural organisations, the kind of insurance that's closing them down and forcing them to drop the kind of activities that they often do – that, in fact, has gone up by sixteen percent since the new judicial guidelines came into place.
3: Yeah, because I know Insurance Ireland, uh, who obviously represent the interest, uh, the industry, they're saying the employers' liability, public liability, and uh, commercial property markets are all operating at a loss. Have we, have we, too many people suing for trips, falls, and slips?
6: Well, look, at it. that's what insurance is there for. If you're injured due to the negligence of somebody else, then you're entitled to seek compensation. And that's why insurance is there in the first place. And it works perfectly in the rest of the world. It's only in Ireland that we have this situation. And when you, when you quote Insurance Ireland and what they're saying, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? Because their job is to protect their members. And uh, so they are not yielding an inch on this. But the data doesn't lie. Uh, and in terms of people suing, the numbers is dropping and the level of damages they're receiving is far more in line with the rest of Europe uh, than it previously was. So all of those changes are yielding a saving. And the saving can only go in one of two directions. It either is passed on to policyholders in reduced premium cost or it goes into the back pockets of insurers. And almost universally at this stage it is going into the back pockets of insurers.
3: Is Ireland still an unattractive place for insurance companies to do business?
6: It's improved dramatically in the last while, Patricia. So um, I think I mentioned to you before that if I'd been asked to go out and sell Ireland as a a destination for underwriters three years ago, I wouldn't have done it because Ireland was a basket case uh, when it came to the kind of uh, awards we were handing out and the circumstances in which they were being handed out. But that has changed dramatically. It's all going in the right direction. Um, so now is a really good time for underwriters to come in because uh, they would have the advantage of not having to deal with all the legacy issues uh, that incumbent insurers have uh, have to deal with. So there's two parts to it in terms of why why the the, the government need to act on this. First is that uh, the incumbents are in a very comfortable position. There's very little competition on liability insurance. Uh, and uh, they're essentially saying, right, well, we're going to pocket the gains. It's up to government as the only player in this area who has any direct power with the insurers to make sure that they pass on the benefits. And government are telling us that they can't set the rate of insurance, and that's fair enough. Um But the insurers really need them, and there's a queue of insurers every week looking for favours from government, uh, and government need to leverage that power uh, into reductions for policyholders. And the second thing that needs to be done, and you've referred to it already, is additional underwriters need to come into the market. Uh, Ireland is much more attractive than it was three years ago. Government has acknowledged this with the establishment of the Insurance Competition Office, and uh, the Insurance Competition Office, which uh, answers into the Department of Finance, and Sean Fleming, has been uh, out there with the IDA uh, to get overseas underwriters in, but they haven't yielded any results yet and they need to dig deeper on that and start to get new underwriters then.
3: OK, a listener says, could you ask Peter, what about exaggerated claims and exaggerated injuries? Are they still a problem in this country?
6: Yes, both fraudulent, uh, straight fraudulent and exaggerated claims remain an issue. Um, but what's extraordinary on that, and again, uh, somewhat surprisingly, is the insurers need to, to to front up on this. They're not reporting them onto the guarantee. Uh, so they would prefer to settle and save the cost of pursuing fraudulent and exaggerated claims. Uh, and uh, we welcomed the establishment of a Garda Insurance Fraud Coordination Office a couple of years ago. Uh, and they've been coordinating the Garda response to insurance, reform since, or insurance fraud since 2019. Uh But the number of reports they're getting from the insurance industry has dropped quite dramatically, down by 45% over two years. So essentially what they are doing, which they have often done, is just settle Mm. to reduce the cost of an individual claim rather than pursue it when it's a rank injustice.
3: Yeah, and there are people out there who are almost making a living on it. You, know, you 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 hear of people, they can't be that unlucky that every single year they seem to be having a minor tip in the car or a trip or a fall and they're constantly in and out uh, suing and they're getting payouts
6: every time. Absolutely, and yeah. the, the Gardaí are very well aware of this and are pursuing these... Uh, kind of claims through the courts but they can only deal with what they have reported Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, 100% Okay, but back to the insurance premiums I mean I was only reading in the paper this morning it's Galway's Galway City's only ice rink will not be opening for Christmas this year Uh, The owner said the insurance premium increased by 700% Yeah, and there's
6: absolutely no reason for that The number of claims is dropping uh, and the average payout on the claims is dropping So That's just an underwriter, in our view, pulling a figure out of the ether uh, because they can get away with it. And uh, that's not sustainable. So essentially, and the ice rinks are a good example of it, right? You know, there's this uh, perception out there that they're risky. The ice rinks operated in this country are incredibly safe. They're well managed uh, and there are very few genuine accidents. Now... As a result, um, we don't see too many claims going through the courts nowadays uh, that target ice rinks. Mm. And yet the cost to cover has made them unsustainable in Ireland. There are very few operators left. You look all over the rest of Europe, there are plenty of ice rinks yeah. and people are well able to get out and socialise and enjoy and the build of it's,
3: it's one of those things for children and families and the entire family can go out and, and have fun and it would be dreadful if we start yeah. seeing because it's a recently new phenomenon, I suppose in the last maybe 10 years ice rinks have, have taken off, but they're hugely popular and it's almost part of the Christmas experience for a lot of families and we're just going to start seeing less and less of them.
6: Well we are seeing less and less of them Patricia and I think last Christmas there were only three or four in the ah, country stressful. Um and you know it looks like there's even one less this year now with the Galway one gone so it, it, it is, it's happened already and to a large extent over the last six to eight months it has been Uh, concealed by other crises in terms of energy costs uh, in particular. Mm. Um, But it continues to be a massive issue. It continues to close businesses down and and it continues to cause the loss of the fabric of Irish society, the kind of stuff that we would like to see in place. Um, And I'm particularly conscious of children um, and the the loss of playground facilities, uh, the loss of... uh, Play centres and um, the kind of restrictions that are imposed to them in a school setting, uh, particularly when it comes to PE uh, and play in the playground. You know, our our kids are being penalised by this crisis in a way that nobody else has been uh, penalised, and uh, like it was just
0: a ready to pop the question.
6: Extraordinary. It was quite telling there recently to see the adventure centres meet their European counterparts and their European counterparts laughing at the thought that insurance was putting them out of business. Mm. Uh, This is such a random thought uh, to the average European. Uh, and they can just get on with life and live it to the full and we're being restricted in what we can do uh, by a crisis that shouldn't have existed in the first place is being addressed uh, uh, but the insurers aren't responding
3: And you can tie that in with unfortunately the childhood obesity issue that we have in, in this country and if we're not giving children you know, places to go and play and run around and get active in the knock on effect is that that obesity number will just keep rising
6: Not precisely, you know. And when you hear from individual schools that don't allow kids to run in the playground, and and the many reports I've had of kids, for example, not being able to play hurling in the in the playground during break, and you know, you're that's taking that issue head on uh, and having a direct impact on it. And because even kids, when kids want to exercise and be out there and have fun with their friends, uh, they're being told they can't.
3: Okay, do you worry about the winter months ahead? We have uh, you've touched on it in the in the rising energy uh, costs and now with insurance costs, will we lose some businesses? Do you think over this
6: winter? Well, we've lost a trickle the whole way along, and I, I, I suppose there's two elements to it. Right, businesses close because they can't uh, afford the policy, and that's precisely what's happened now with the ice skating in Galway. Um, but the other big one that we is often hidden is what's happening in the voluntary and community sector because. If someone sets up a charity or a voluntary or community group, they do it out of the goodness of their own heart. And they're not going to go away because the, the motivation is a different kind of motivation. But what we're seeing constantly across the country is those kind of groups not doing the sort of stuff that they want to do and having great plans and finding out that it's just uninsurable or it's too expensive to insure. And, and that's my greatest worry, to be honest with you, Patricia, is that society as a whole is going to lose out because all of that voluntary effort is being thwarted by insurance and as anyone who's involved in a voluntary group knows well, it's very hard to get volunteers uh, and to get them motivated and to get them up and running and once you've lost them it's very hard to get them back. So, this needs to be fixed as a matter of urgency because we, we cannot afford to lose all that voluntary effort and the good that Irish people do within their own communities.
3: Well, keep fighting the good fight. You're doing amazing work, uh, Peter, for highlighting this issue. And we thank you for taking time out to talk to us today. Thanks Patricia. Good morning to you. Peter Boland there, Director of the Alliance for Insurance Reform 0818 103 103. and actually I can see a number of texts and WhatsApps coming in uh, with people having great sympathy for Pat one of our listeners who unfortunately got scammed with one of those fake text messages during the rounds coming from the HSE telling uh, Pat that they were close contact, needed to get antigen tests, clicked on the link, they needed bank details in order to get delivery payment for the antigen test and unfortunately it was a scam and Pat lost €2,000 on that particular scam and Pat has asked us to mention just to alert and highlight other people about it a lot of people really really sympathetic uh, towards uh, Pat and somebody says hi Patricia I actually got three of those Covid uh, messages didn't respond to them as when I went and clicked on it to look into it, they were looking for money so I knew immediately that they were scams and somebody else says I've been inundated uh, with those HSE COVID messages. Just delete, delete, delete. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. 103 103 John Paul taking your calls. You can text or WhatsApp oh eight six two. 103.103. 103.
4: Cork Today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. C-M-I-G dot I-E.
0: Cork Today on C103. Text or WhatsApp Patricia with your comment. 086 eight
3: six-2103-103. And Anna Donovan, Development Manager with South Munster Citizens Information Service covering West Cork and uh, based in Bantry. Joins for our monthly information slot. Good morning to you, Anne. Morning, Patricia. And today we are looking at supports if you are unfortunate enough to lose your job. And I think losing your job at this time of the year has got to be the worst, worst. There's never a right time to lose your job, but losing the room to Christmas, uh, I always think it's got to be the worst time. Anyway, firstly, how are things going at the Citizens Information Centre?
7: Very well, Patricia. The service continues to be busy and you know there's increasing number of people dropping into our centers for face-to-face consultations as well as the ongoing contact by phone and and email but uh, very busy at the moment
3: okay okay so we're talking about somebody losing uh, their job now it is widely recognized that losing your job can be one of the most difficult times of your life if somebody is informed by their employer that their job is ending what are the things they need to consider
7: Okay, yeah, it is a stressful time for people, uh, but yes, we would always say there's a number of things you should look at. Okay, so first of all, as an employee, it, um, you're entitled to any outstanding wages due to you, uh, and you should receive pay for any annual leave, which you are due uh, and you haven't had a chance to take. Now, it's important to note that the ending of employment is the only situation where it's legal to pay somebody instead of giving them their annual leave. Um, if your employment ends during the week, Uh, ending on the day before a public holiday and you've worked for your employer for the previous four weeks, you should be compensated for that and get an additional day's pay for the public holiday. And that also applies to part-time employees who have a right to the public holiday if they've uh, been working at least 40 hours in the previous five weeks. Um, the other thing then to consider is that you should receive payment instead of notice if you haven't worked your notice period. So if you haven't been got a chance to work out your notice period, you should be paid for that period. If, you, if there's a pension scheme in the company, they, uh, you should be informed about what happens to your pension fund. Uh, now, uh, traditionally, when someone was leaving, they would get a P45. Now, uh, there's a change now. You no longer get a P45 when you lose your job. Now when you leave a job, your employer will enter your leaving date and details of your final pay and deductions into Revenue's online system. And if tax has been deducted from your pay since the 1st of january last and you're now unemployed you may be entitled to a tax
3: refund so those are all things to consider okay and it's interesting because people used to actually talk about i got my p45 you no longer physically uh, get that now notice there's been a lot of talk about this i think particularly with regard uh, to the job losses at twitter but how much notice should somebody get
7: OK, so the length of notice you're entitled to will depend on your contract of employment, but there's also a minimum entitlement set out in the legislation. So to be entitled to the legal minimum, you must have been working for your employer continuously for at least 13 weeks. That's about three months. Now, if you've worked for from 13 weeks to two years, you must get one week, while you get two weeks' notice if you were employed from two to five years. Now, this increases to four weeks if you're employed from 5 to 10 years and six weeks if you're t- employed from 10 to 15. You can see how it goes up. Yeah. Like, and then if you're employed for 15 years or more, you're entitled to eight weeks notice. So, as, so the longer someone's there, the more notice they get. And the other thing to, that's important to remember is that whatever your contract says, your contract employment, your employer must give you at least the statutory minimum notice. You cannot get less even if your contract says this.
3: OK, so that's sort of, that, that's peace of mind to somebody who thinks that like on a Friday the employer says your job is gone and there's no work for Monday, they do have to give you a notice. Can uh, an employee receive pay instead of that notice?
7: Yeah, now under the employment legislation, you can agree with your employer to waive your right to notice. So um, so it, it might suit you to to. to to not work out your notice if you both agree your employer can pay you instead of the notice so say let's say you were there for 15 years you'd be paid for the 8 weeks instead of getting the 8 weeks notice
3: we'll often hear in the news about redundancies what does redundancy when does that happen
7: Okay, so where you lose your job because your employer is closing the business or reducing the number of staff, that's when the redundancy situation arises. So it, ha- it really happens when your job in the company no longer exists, you're let go and you're not replaced. And that's the key bit, that, that the job, it's job is gone. You know? Now, it's important to be aware that like, redundancy should be a last option and there must be valid economic, technical or organizational grounds justifying changes in the workforce, and that has to be shown.
3: What option is there if somebody feels that they're unfairly selected or that there wasn't a genuine redundancy situation?
7: Yeah, now, if you feel that your employer has selected you unfairly or that there was no genuine redundancy situation, you can bring a claim for unfair dismissal. And in that situation, the obligation will be on the employer to prove that it was fair, you know, and and that can arise in a situation where somebody leaves their job and they're told the job is gone, and then they find out a couple of weeks later or a month later that somebody has is now trying yes, to do their yeah. job. Yeah. So in that situation, it would be seen as a, a as an unfair selection. Now, I, I, we would really say you can discuss this. You know, if any situation of that arises will be worthwhile to discuss it with your local Citizens Information Centre, and they'll advise you on your options. Then,
3: so what is statutory redundancy pay then?
7: Okay, so um, statutory redundancy means that you're entitled to get a minimum redundancy payment after you have two years service in your job. So you have to be there for two years. Um, The statutory redundancy is based on a calculation using your pay and your length of service. So if you're eligible for redundancy pay, you're entitled to two weeks pay for every year of service. Plus one year. So, for argument's sake, if you were in the company for 10 years uh, and you have 10 complete years worked, you get two two weeks pay for every year. So, that would be 20 weeks plus one. So, you get 21 weeks. So, it's always two two weeks pay for every year of service and one additional week at the end. Now, the other thing about statutory redundancy is that the maximum weekly amount used to calculate redundancy pay is 600 a week even if your pay is more. So, for argument's sake, if you were paid 700 euros per week, the maximum you will get would be 600. Okay. Whereas if you were paid 500 per week, you'll get the 500.
3: Do you know, but okay, 600 the and, but it, it depends on how long you were actually in the position. Now, the, loss, to, yeah. the loss of income, I, th- I think, Anne, is probably the biggest concern when somebody loses, the, loses their job. So, if somebody loses their job, what are the social welfare supports? Uh, what, what are they entitled to claim?
7: Yeah, so uh, depending on your circumstances, you may be entitled to an unemployment social welfare payment. So if you have enough social insurance contributions, what people used to colloquially call their stamps, you may be entitled to job seekers' benefit. And then if you don't have enough PRSI contributions, you may qualify for job seekers' allowance, which is means-tested.
3: OK, I think what people refer to as the dole. Well, what is mm. the difference then between those two, job seekers' benefit and job seekers' allowance?
7: Yeah, so the, the entitlement to job seekers benefit is based on the amount of social insurance that you've paid. Now, you need to have a minimum of 104 weeks um, of what Class A, which most people would be on Class A if you're an employee, but you need a minimum of 104 weeks of Class A or HRP count as well, paid contributions, or if you're self employed, you'd need at least 156. Self employed PRSI contributions since you first started work. And then you need a certain amount paid or credited in what's called the relevant tax year, which is always two years back. So if, you're a, if you were claiming a job seeker's payment in 2022, they're looking at the contributions you made in 2020. It's always two years back. Now that's job seeker's benefit, which is PRSI based. Now um, the job seekers allowance is means tested so that means any income you have um, is taken into account any savings you have uh, if you're if you have a spouse a partner their income is looked at so so it's so the it is a means tested payment job seekers
3: allowance okay that's the main difference between the two and what are the qualifying conditions for job seekers payments
7: so the first thing so to qualify for job seekers payments you must be aged under sixty six and you must have had a substantial loss of employment. And as a result of that, you were employed for at least four days out of seven. Now, the other things are that you must be capable of work and you must be available for and genuinely seeking work. Now, as we mentioned earlier, for job seekers benefit, you must have enough PRSI contributions. And for job seekers allowance you have to pass the means test and you must also satisfy what they call the habitual residence condition that's where you must prove that Ireland is your main centre of interest Um While if you're getting a job seekers payment, you must attend meetings and take part in appropriate employment schemes, training or work experience if you're requested by the Department of Social Protection. So there's a whole range of of conditions there you have to meet.
3: Yeah, and that's the department trying to help you to get back into the workforce. Now, you mentioned that you must be unemployed for at least four out of seven days. Does that mean you can work for three and still get a job seekers payment?
7: Yeah, that's correct. So if you're in a situation that you can only find part-time work or if your employer reduces your days at work, say you were working five days and you're reduced down to three days a week or less, you may get a jobseeker's payment for the other days. Uh, now, it's important to remember that you must also meet the other conditions that apply in the in, in relation to jobseeker's payments. For example, you must continue to look for full-time work. And in the case of jobseeker's allowance, any income from work is assessed in the means test. Um now, if you were on, if you're receiving job seekers benefit, so that's that's based on a, a five day week so that so that for each day that a person is employed, one fifth of the normal rate of job seekers benefit is deducted from their payment. But but you can work up to three days and get some portion of a job seekers payment.
3: OK, what about a person listening who's working full time? Uh, can they just reduce their hours and then get the job payment for the other days? No, Ah. if you've been working full time
7: and say maybe you're into a job sharing arrangement, you're not eligible for job seekers' benefit because you've voluntarily opted to work fewer days. So uh, fewer hours or days. And it's the same if someone decides to give up work or reduce their hours due to childcare commitments, they wouldn't be eligible for job seekers' payment as they voluntarily gave up work and they're and they're considered to be unavailable for work on on those days
3: okay stay with the unavailable for work. What are the other situations where somebody would be considered unavailable?
7: Yeah, Now there are various scenarios that would be considered problematic, such as if you were looking for a particular type of work only, say if you're only available during hours which are not typical of the employment you're looking for. Say, for example, if you were looking for a clerical office work in the evenings only, you know, it's, it's, it's not being practical. Uh, if you're unwilling to take up an, an offer of reasonable short-term employment, For example, relief work or employment under a short-term contract. Another issue that would would be problematic is if you move to a location where your prospects of getting suitable employment are significantly reduced. Now, however, it's important to say the reasons for the move will be taken into account. Uh, Another issue that could be problematic is if you're placing unreasonable restrictions on the distance which you're willing to travel to find work. But again, access to public and private transport is taken into account. So all of those things are are kind of are, are. Factors that are considered.
3: All right, talk to me about self-employed people and if they lose their employment. OK,
7: so if you're self-employed, there is um, job seekers benefit for self-employed is a weekly payment from the department uh, to people who lose their self-employment. Now, to qualify, you must be aged between 18 and 66 and you must be no longer self-employed. So you can't be actively self-employed. You must have lost your self-employment involuntarily and not because of a temporary shutdown or seasonal closure. Now, again, you can work as an employee for up to three days each week and get the job seeker's benefit self-employed, but you can't be working in a self-employed capacity. Um, you must also meet the other conditions like being capable of work, being available for and genuinely seeking work, and you must have obviously enough peer aside contributions. Now, if someone's self-employed and they don't meet the qualifying conditions for job seekers benefits self employed, they may qualify for job seekers allowance, which as I mentioned already means, means tested. tested. Yeah. Are there, yeah.
3: are there yeah. other supports for unemployed pe- for unemployed people? Again, depending on your personal
7: circumstances, if you're getting a job seekers payment, you may qualify for a medical card or or maybe a GP visit card and other secondary benefits, such as maybe rent supplement uh, or things like the back to school clothing and footwear allowance. So that's what I really suggest. Someone would talk to their local CIC and they would make them aware of what secondary benefits are available.
3: Yeah, because a lot of these you need to apply, the the, the department don't realise that you're entitled uh, to it. No, and there's slightly different rules around all of them, so yeah. And then schemes to support people to get back into employment. Yeah, no, there are a number of schemes. Um, I suppose there's one uh,
7: one of the newer ones called the Work Placement Experience Programme, and that gives people who've never had a job or who have lost their job a chance to get work experience. Um, the whole idea behind it is that it aims to give you the opportunity to retrain and get experience in a new role while on a, a work placement in a host organisation. Now, to, to benefit from that, you must be aged between 18 and 65 you must have been unemployed for at least six months and you must be getting a qualifying social welfare payment, like a job seekers payment. The scheme lasts for six months and there's no, there is no option to extend the placement. Six months is the longest you can stay on it. Now, if someone was thinking about becoming self-employed, there is the Back to Work Enterprise allowance scheme that helps unemployed people and other people getting certain social welfare payments to become self-employed. Um, there's also the, the community employment uh program and uh, that provides long term unemployed and other disadvantaged people with training and work experience through part time and temporary placements in in jobs that they kind of key jobs really in local communities and again how you qualify to participate in a C scheme will depend on your age and your personal circumstances um, the two scheme that's another scheme that's there's community uh, work placement initiative um, it provides work opportunities which benefit the community and are provided by a community and volunteer organizations in both urban and rural areas and Again, unemployed people who are eligible to participate in the scheme are selected and contacted by the department of social protection um, The other thing that 's the scheme there is the jobs plus that 's an employer incentive which encourages and rewards employers to employed job seekers on the live register so there's kind of a range of schemes there that people may be able to benefit from
3: okay and we're up against it on time because obviously there is uh, help available will be means tested for people who are having difficulty paying their rent are paying their mortgage we've really only scratched the surface there's so much information uh, contained in what we've been talking about today and that's why contacting your citizens information center is the way to go
7: yeah it would be yes i mean it is as you said it's a, it's a vast area but if someone would like any more give give us a shout and call into us or drop into us or, or ring us you can ring the west cork office on zero eight one eight zero seven eight three nine zero, or call the mallow office on zero eight one eight zero seven eight zero zero zero. or or log on to the citizensinformation.ie. Our website is is very good or or just drop into your local centre you know
3: well done, you're your, a okay? your mine of information as always. Thank you for that, Anne. We'll speak again. Thank Thanks you. for joining us. Anne O'Donovan, Development Manager with the South Munsters' information. Cork Today on C103.
4: With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. Cmig.ie. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed.
3: With the Horrible, horrible weather that we're having at the moment. It's nice to dream of balmy summer evenings for next year. And when we think of balmy summer evenings in Cork, we often think of a trip to live at the Marquee and all of the wonderful gigs that uh, Aiken Promotion bring to uh, Cork. And of course, it's just been announced that the one and only legendary singer-songwriter Christy Moore will be returning to play a date live at the Marquee. The date has been set is Saturday, the 17th of June. Now, please note that the tickets go on sale this Thursday morning at 9am through Ticketmaster.ie. I imagine that this will, be, this will be included as Christmas present for some people, particularly Christy Moore fans. And Christy Moore traditionally live at the Marquis sell out and sell out really, really quickly. But the good people at Aiken have very kindly given us a pair of tickets to give away every day this week to go along and see Christy Moore live at the Marquis on Saturday, uh, June 17th. We need you to tell us the title of of this Christy Moore song and look for the spark that lights the night now what you need to do I need you to give me the name of the song along with your name and address you can start texting or whatsapping now 0862 103, 103 and then we'll put all the names or the correct names into a hat and we will select our winner for today which Christy Moore song is this
2: and look for the spark
3: the night. And uh, hopefully it'll be genuine Christy Moore fans who are really excited about the idea of going to see him once again live at the Marquee next uh, summer, next June. But a reminder that the tickets for Christy Moore Live go on sale this Thursday morning at 9am through ticketmaster.ie. Get texting or WhatsApping only please, 086. 103, 103. And while we are waiting to select our winner, let me take a look at some of your texts and comments that are coming into the programme on a variety of different issues, including Eileen in Clam, Khan, in Khan, who's kind of scratching her head at the moment and is wondering if we could advise her what to do with the current guidelines when you test positive for COVID-19. Eileen says, anything I found online uh, was, is in place and was last updated in spring of this year. Do you, for example, still need to get a PCR test? What are the rules for children? Are they the same as for adults? I'm so confused at the moment, says Eileen in one And I'm assuming that somebody in the house has tested positive, possibly on an antigen test. The only thing I can say, Eileen, was what happened in my situation. We all three in our house tested positive. It's about a month ago now. Marcia was the first to test positive. Then I tested positive, And then Brendan, my husband, tested positive. So I, like you... Straight away went on to the HSC just to get the update on what's happening with self-isolation. What do you need? What do you need to do? How long do you need to isolate for? And, and you're right. It was last updated in February of uh, 2022. So it was in the spring time when there was a lot more COVID than there is at the moment. What, all I can say is what we did was we stuck with the seven days of um, isolation, self-isolation. All three of us had it so we didn't have to self-isolate from each other in that we didn't have anybody stuck in a room on their own. Uh, so we just lived as normal, just the three of us. But we didn't go outside the house. Um, and then when I came back to work, certainly for three days afterwards, I took extra care on the people at work for example I worked from home in the afternoon so I wouldn't be around uh, people so much I wore masks uh, when I was in any public area and I did that for, for three days after the seven days but for self-isolation I really just we just stayed indoors and that seems to be you know COVID the COVID that people are picking up today is the same COVID that was around in the spring of this year it's just the thing is people are not getting as sick but you still don't want to pass it on to anyone so I imagine the reason that it has Hasn't been updated online is that the, the the restrictions and the advice around isolation remains uh, the same. That's the only advice that I can give perhaps if, if you want further clarification if maybe you ring the HSC, I don't think you need to get a PCR test we certainly didn't get a PCR test once we knew that Marsha had been exposed to COVID and once she tested positive we knew then for sure we were going to test positive because it's impossible to self-isolate and to keep away from Marcia because of the the close care the self-care that she needs it, it's, it's absolutely impossible so we've come to the conclusion whenever COVID comes into our house because it was the second time that it arrived in our doorstep so whenever it comes we know all three of us will go down with it so no we didn't go for for PCR testing and I don't think you have to go for PCR testing we did get on to the HSC through their online portal though I made them aware that we had tested positive on antigen tests but if you want to ring the HSC maybe if you want further clarification but my understanding of it everything remains you stick with the isolation rules that were in place earlier on in the year they haven't changed in any way 0818 103 103. we we're talking about the Bottle Hill landfill site, the mothballed Bottle Hill landfill site that has cost the council 50 million euro. It's a gobsmacking fee and there is an ongoing cost for that landfill site remaining closed. Another suggestion from some of the councillors, could they open it? What could they do with it? Is there something, is there some way they could save the council by opening up? Could it be used for construction waste? And uh, but looking at... Looking at the suggestion of it being used for construction waste, it certainly would save the council money because at the moment we send it by land to another county, which is not making any sense uh, at all, so there could be some savings uh, in that. but somebody has come up with a suggestion i don 't know if this sits very well with me, but let 's see what other how other listeners feel Simple solution says this text or there isn 't a name on this um, to, for, for the bottle Hill landfill site is to install a combined incinerator slash cremation facility there and then use the heat gener- generated in combination with a district heating system to pump warm water into the Mallow area. That will also solve the issue while maintaining... It will also solve the issue about maintaining graveyards in that I'm assuming you're thinking... You're saying that everyone would get cremated rather than being buried. I don't know if that operates anywhere in the world where you would have an incinerator for waste, either domestic waste or commercial waste, and you'd have it side by side in a site where you'd have a cremation for for cremating our loved ones are our own remains I don't know if that would sit beside an incinerator I do think you know the incin- and then of course the very fact that you mentioned incinerators nobody wants to live anywhere near an incinerator but certainly heat that could be generated from an incinerator could be used in district heating systems it's what's done in other countries I just don't know if I would tie it in in the very same word or have it in the very same site an incinerator and a cremation, just even reading your text, putting those two words together just doesn't sit right with me. maybe it's me, maybe I'm being too sensitive, I don't know, but I certainly don't uh, also don't think that it would stop the need for maintaining graveyards because by saying that you are effectively saying that everyone then would have to be cremated and that people wouldn't be allowed the option of being buried and remember there are people who don't like the idea of being cremated and want to be buried. Thank you for your suggestion though to 0862103103 103. and thank you to Michael. In Bantry, he said, Hi, Patricia, I saw five Curlews flying over my cottage last week in Bantry. Uh, Well done, because there isn't that many of them around. A lot of questions coming in for Annalise. Keep those coming. Martin in from Moy. Have to disagree with you, Martin, on this one. Said he watched I'm a Celebrity. Get me out of here last time. Well, Patricia, says Martin. It was the most stupidest programme I have ever watched. Why would the contestants put themselves through these things on a television show? It was my first time watching it, and Anton Deck should be locked up, and so should anybody else who watches it. I'd rather watch Fair City, and that's useless says Martin (laughs) I disagree with you I'm a big fan of I'm a celebrity get me out of here it doesn't tax the brain in any way Uh, to me it's a bit of a laugh and I think you associate it with this time of year you know by the time it ends we'll be very near to putting up the Christmas tree and getting the Christmas decorations uh, out it's not everybody's cup of tea Martin likewise I wouldn't be into sitting down and watching a soccer match week after week after week and there are people who just live and die by watching soccer matches so it's a kind of a case of each to their own but i will say to you martin there is it is a hugely popular programme as I say not everybody's cup of tea but there are massive viewership figures both in the UK and also here in Ireland and why do people put themselves uh, through it for money they get huge sums of money boy George who is kind of the top celebrity that went in that we saw go in last night into the jungle and he's getting half a million euro to appear so I would say top of the list why people go in is for financial gain and the second reason people go in, they go in to boost their public profile. Remember they are all celebrities and they do it either to boost their public profile or maybe if they've had a bad run of publicity and they're trying to turn the public around to say oh look at me, I'm a nice guy, I'm a nice gal and they do it for that reason as well but predominantly they do it because they make a lot of money out of it uh, Martin but I take it, it was your first time watching it last night and it will be your last and that is your prerogative and that's why we have so many TV shows and so many TV channels. There's bound to be something on tonight at 9 o'clock that you'll be able to watch but I put my hand up and uh, say you suggest I should be locked up for it. Well that's your opinion. I certainly will be watching it again tonight. 0818 103 103 On petrol pumps and safety at uh, petrol pumps column in Botterfint says anyone Anyone that can lead to a problem is another thing, sorry, that can lead to problems at petrol stations. It's it's to do with people using their mobile phones when filling up. People don't seem to realise that your mobile phone sends a signal. There are a lot of signs about mobile mobile phone usage and not using a mobile phone at petrol stations. But Coleman Mbutment has noticed he's spotted people who will get out of their car while filling up. You know, they'll be on the phone, obviously, when they pull up at the garage and they'll be on their phone chatting to somebody while filling up and I checked out as to what is the danger with using a mobile phone and it's a a risk seemingly of a spark from a mobile phone, something I would never have thought of and it seems mobile phones are not designed and certified for use anywhere where there's deemed an explosive atmosphere which exists temporarily around the pump and the nozzle at the time that you're refilling your uh, car. And that is one of the reasons why you will see large signs at all petrol stations saying that mobile phones are banned. So it's something else that people need to keep in mind. Get off your phone, please, and put out the cigarette. Do not be trying to fill up your car with, uh, while, with, with a cigarette in your hand. OK, a couple of other texts coming in. Oh, yeah, we were talking about ice skating. Uh, in the last hour we were talking about insurance costs and public liability costs and I mentioned that there is a skating rink in Galway that's not going to open this year because their insurance premium went up by 700% and no matter how much they charged the people going into ice skate they could never make or cover the cost of the insurance premium alone and Peter Boland was saying and by the way that particular skating rink in Galway said that they had a good track record with their insurance I'm assuming they've had little or no uh, claims and Peter Boland uh, was also say that there hasn't been that many claims associated with skating rinks but we're going to see less and less of them certainly this year. Well uh, one of our listeners in Kilworth disagrees with that and says all for keeping children fit and getting them involved in sports or whatever but I do have a huge issue around ice skating rinks says this Kilworth uh, listener. This listener says that they know the of amount of children in their own social group are relatives of Theirs are in their own social group who have broken collarbones, legs, arms and have had tears. Many ending up needing hospital appointments, etc. All from falling or slipping in an ice skating rink. This is to make the point in other countries, particularly countries where ice skating is a popular sport. Children will go for classes and they learn how to ice skate and they learn how to ice skate from an early age. Not the case here in Ireland. People just pop on the skates and Take off on the ice skating rink and think they'll be naturally able to ice skate. I know of a family whose little girl fell on her sister broke her collarbone and her little sister fractured her ankle. They had little little girl had to have three operations on her ankle. I'm not a killjoy, by the way, but we need to weigh up the pros and cons when it comes to ice skating in this uh, country. I also know of another family whose niece in Dublin around eight was pushed by other lads who were missing, broke her leg very badly. They had an awful... Christmas that year 0818103103. and Anne says Patricia this is to do with the scams and when we're thinking about poor Pat who's been scammed out of 2000 euro by a, what they thought was a genuine text from the HSE and it wasn't it was a scam and unfortunately Pat gave bank details and 2000 euro was immediately taken out of Pat's account and says I got a call on my landline from a foreign sounding person. They were telling me that there was something wrong with my internet and they were claiming to be from air. So I spoke back to them in Spanish, um, saying, I don't understand what you're saying. And the person with the foreign speaking accent kept saying, Speak English, speak English, ma'am. So that I then started to speak in very broken English, says Anne. He got fed up and told me, you need to go for a rest so I immediately knew that it was a scam artist and decided to try and they they do get very annoyed if you try and scam them I remember keeping somebody on the line I would say for a good half an hour and I reckoned by keeping the person on the line I was stopping them scamming somebody else but it took about a half an hour before they realised that I was you know there was no way they were getting any bank details out of me and they got very abusive at the end of the call but I still waited. I let them hang up before I hung up in the hope that I was saving somebody else from getting that kind of abuse. But Anne also says in going back to the gentleman who raised the issue about smoking in, at a petrol station, I was getting the shiv- shivers down my spine just listening to his comment. How could anyone be that stupid as to go out and fill up your petrol or diesel and to do it with a lit cigarette? Absolutely crazy. That's from and um, thank you. Um, there's some of your calls and texts uh, coming into us, and you can stop by the way texting and WhatsApping. For our Christie Moore competition. We'll be announcing the winner in a couple of minutes, and we want to free up the text and WhatsApp for our Annalise and questions for Annalise. The C
1: one oh three Cork Diary.
4: With Cork County Council, delivering roads and housing, community and business supports all across the county. See CorkCoco.ie.
3: The Pike Theatre Group, they're based in Ballancolic. They're holding their monthly script. It's tomorrow night, Tuesday, in Balancholic Rugby. Be club Tanner Park, it's at half past eight. Now, they will have a choice from Westgate Foundation performing on the night, and the usual cuppa and sandwiches, music, song, and maybe even an old dance. Uh, a raffle also on the night. And bingo is on in Chambali Moor Community Centre, that's tomorrow night at eight. The jackpot is 3,100 euro hands Fun Afternoon of Wellness, Music, Poetry and Song, that will be held on Wednesday from 2pm. Lots of free activities. Everyone's welcome to book your place. Please call 021 45 And Grow Community Mental Health are holding their annual fundraising collection. It's a Dano Super Value in Bellevue. It's this Thursday. Your support will be gratefully appreciated. And please note that Grow meetings are held every Monday night at the Lakela Centre 715 in Mallow.
1: Cork Today on C103
4: with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home,
3: business, farm, life and health insurance. cmig.ie.
0: This
1: is the Cork Today replay on C103.
3: And I just mentioned the Community Diary and events that are on across the week. Somebody wants me to mention that Bingo's on in Buttervent tonight. I don't think that was included in our Community Diary for today. So glad to give that a mention. Somebody was suggesting that district heating could be used if the Bottle Hill site was turned into an incinerator and a crematorium. Um, and obviously, oh, I don't know if I like the idea of having an incinerator for commercial and domestic waste and to have it on the same site as people would be going uh, to say goodbye to their loved ones, it just maybe it's just me, but it just doesn't sit well with me. But somebody said, uh, Patricia, district heating was tried in Europe with the heat generated from a crematorium, or at least it was been spoken about. I'll take a look and see if I can find out anything about that, because I don't know if I've ever seen that before. But that's not to say that it hasn't been uh, tried. But I imagine you'd have to have a lot of cremations going on in order to supply enough heat for a district heating system, would you not oh eight one eight oh one oh three one zero three can anybody offer advice to mary, uh, please? She wants to know is she entitled to any kind of a grant uh, if she 's moving into a council house to purchase furniture? The reason she 's asking is they 've been living in rented accommodation where all of the furniture was provided, and uh, she has now been given a council house and she's wondering does she have to come up with the money herself because obviously the council house will have a fitted kitchen that will be it There, it's, it's basically it's an empty shell of a house she will be moving into so are there any grants available for somebody moving from private rented accommodation with no furniture they haven't had a you know if somebody was buying a house you might you had sold another house and you'd bring your, your furniture with you does anybody know if, if there are any grants available for somebody moving into a council house but well done uh, Mary you must be thrilled that you're getting your keys to hopefully what will be your forever home if anybody is advice from Mary uh, please have you been in that situation where you've moved from private rented accommodation into a council house did you receive any help towards the cost of furniture for the new house 0818 103 103 John Paul is taking calls and congratulations this was the song we played and
2: look for the spark
3: that lights the night You see, I had to sing that song in my head to work out what was the name of the song. The song is called Ride On. Huge reaction to this. Jarishy people got it right. There was a couple of wrong answers in there as well. But it is Geraldine Lovell of Deer Park in Abandon. Congratulations to you, Geraldine. You can, when you get your 2023 calendar markup, Saturday, the seventeenth of June, because guess what? On Saturday, the seventeenth of June, you will be heading to live at the Marquee to see the legendary singer-songwriter Christy Moore, who has released thirty solo albums. The guy is incredible. He has so much material that he can use at any of his gigs. Congratulations, Geraldine Lovell, at Deer Park in Bandon. We'll do that every day this week. We've a pair of tickets uh, to give away because the tickets are officially going on sale this Thursday morning at 9am from ticketmaster.ie but we've got the first of those tickets to give away for free and as I say a pair of tickets will be given away every day and seeing as I said to Georgie when she gets her 2023 calendar uh, to make sure that she writes up Saturday the 17th of June a reminder to anyone we've done this over the last couple of years to any charity our community group our school our men's shed or whatever, whatever kind of a group or organization you are, if you've put together a calendar for 2023 that you're selling locally to generate and to raise a bit of money for your charity or community group or whatever it is, get a copy of the calendar into us, please. And as I say, we've done this for the last couple of years, we'll give a mention to to the calendars and we'll mention them as often as we can just to let people know that the calendars are on sale send the calendar in so that I can physically talk about how beautiful your calendar is and just give us details of the cost of the calendar and where the calendar is on sale because it's a little bit like when people are buying Christmas cards Always encourage people to buy where possible to try and buy some, if not all, charity Christmas uh, cards. And it's the same with your calendars. I mean, I, I take it I couldn't survive in my house without my calendar. It almost becomes my diary. Uh, And it becomes the family diary for the following year. So as soon as something happens, you write it up in the calendar so the people will know on such and such a date. There's a dental appointment or we're going to have visitors or we're going to visit somebody else. And so you won't double book. I find the calendar of my house invaluable, I have to say. So anyway, get it into us. You can send it here to C103 at Gould's Hill in Mallow. And because I'm assuming the calendars now have started to go on sale because it's around this time that people are really thinking about the Christmas cards and Christmas cards kind of tie in with people buying calendars. Get your, as I say, charity calendars, just so that we can give a bit of a mention and a bit of a plug to whatever you're involved with. But just let us know the cost of it and where your calendar is on sale. 0818 103 103. John Paul's taking your calls. We are looking now in particular, please, for questions for Annelise Drussell of the Health Hub. Times Square in Bellincolic. She joins us to answer all of your nutritional questions. You can text, you can WhatsApp to 0862. 103.103 103.103 103.
1: Court Today on C103
4: With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group They don't just talk the talk They walk the walk C-M-I-G dot I-E
3: We're going to the Health Hub store Times Square in Bellancolic Where I'm joined by Annalise Dressel Good afternoon to you Anna-Lise. Good afternoon Patricia On a wet and a windy and a rotten old day out there
1: Yeah, pretty miserable, all right. I was down in the regional park this morning and it is just so waterlogged and grounded. I haven't seen it like that for years.
3: Well done, but you got out for your walk. Oh yeah, I have to for my head. Well done, yeah. well done. Yeah. Okay, let's get straight into questions. Hi, Patricia, could you please ask Annelise to repeat her advice regarding a Terranova product for osteoporosis? I was unable to purchase it at my health shop as I, I was told I would need more additional information. They explained to me that Terranova was the brand name. Uh, thanking you.
1: Okay, so Terranova don't actually do a product for osteoporosis. I wonder, was I talking about uh, maybe vitamin D and vitamin K, the importance of that for osteoporosis? So vitamin D, very important to help you absorb calcium from your diet. And vitamin K then is very important for you to get the calcium out of your blood onto your bones in a healthy way. The disadvantage about taking high doses of calcium increases the risk that it will harden the arteries around your heart and increase your risk of heart disease. So... A lot of the natural supplements won't have calcium, but the other things. Now, there are a couple of other supplements that we get very good results and feedback from. One is a company called Nature's Plus. They do a very expensive one, which is called Garden Bone Support. And we've had amazing feedback on that. Um, And they also do a cheap and cheerful one, which is basically uh, Nature's Plus, calcium, magnesium and vitamin D and vitamin K. And that's exactly what it's called. Um, And then Biocare do a nice one called Osteoplex. So they would be more complete and they'd have a bit of calcium, vitamin D, uh, vitamin K2, boron, a little bit of vitamin C and magnesium in there as well.
3: I'm wondering, would that be the same advice for Kay, who's recently been told that she has osteopenia in her hips, but not in her spine and is wondering what type of calcium supplement would you recommend?
1: You see, I, again, I'm not a big fan of taking a lot of calcium, Patricia, and I know there was a doctor on the radio about three years ago and he was vilified for saying that osteoporosis is not a lack of calcium in Ireland, it's a lack of vitamin D. But actually it makes sense because we have a lot of dairy in our diet, so we do have plenty of calcium in our diet. But for about eight months of the year, we don't have any sunshine. So I think vitamin D is much more important and take at least a 1,000 IUs of that. And if you do want to take calcium, take, um, don't take the calcium carbonate, which is much more likely to cause kidney stones and problems. Take something that is calcium citrate and don't take a very high dose. So taking one of those ones that I spoke of there, like the garden bone support by Nature's Plus is expensive, but that could even possibly help you build backbone. So um, it's a great one for people. We've had people with osteopenia reverse it. Um, Osteoporosis is further along the road, so there's more um, damage done. There's more uh, demineralization of the bone has occurred when you've had osteoporosis. So it might be harder to reverse that but if you want to reverse it uh, have your best chance. The Nature's post garden bone support is good. Otherwise the Biocare op- op- um, Osteoplex just ticks all the boxes and it gives you calcium in a nice low dose of easily absorbed one.
3: Okay I've got two questions in on diverticulitis. One is from Mary in Canturk who is suffering from diverticulitis at the moment. She's wondering can diverticulitis actually cause a person to vomit? How long does it last and what are the remedies? And Brie that has also been diagnosed with diverticulitis and she's wondering is a liquid diet the best diet for it and how important is diet when you've been diagnosed with diverticulitis?
6: So there's
1: diverticulosis is where you get these little weak you get pouches so the the wall of the colon is a kind of a strong muscle and when you get diverticulosis there's weaknesses in parts of that strong muscle and it blows out to form a little pouch. And the danger is that food or undigested food or fecal matter can get stuck in that pouch and it can become infected. And that's when you've got the itis, the diverticulitis. So a lot of people will need an antibiotic at that point. It's very painful. You could definitely vomit. Um, You would feel sick. You might have a high temperature. You will definitely be in pain. So probably antibiotics are the best... um, treatment there if you're at that stage and then once that's cleared up it's all about prevention really because at this point now the damage has been done to your colon. Things like um, constipation or recurrent diarrhea patricia they're all things that would weaken the wall of the bowel so very important to keep yourself having a daily well-formed stool and the psyllium husk is wonderful for that i think more people would be inclined to constipation so um you'd need at least a tablespoon of the psyllium husk on your 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 breakfast every morning uh, make sure that you have a daily bowel movement if you can't use natural laxatives like aloe vera magnesium rhubarb is another one as well so Aloe Pura is a company they do a natural laxative tablet that you can take at night with all of those things in there it's just called um pura complex, I think it's called. Uh, it used to be called colon com- complex. It's just complex now. You can take those at night before you go to bed and you'll have a nice gentle bowel movement in the morning. Probiotics might help as well, especially if you've had an antibiotic because the good bacteria help keep the wall of the intestine healthy. If you've got a good population, they produce a load of nutrients that nourish the cells inside the colon and that that's what keeps them strong and prevents the weaknesses from occurring. So good probiotic um, like the Udo's 8 is lovely uh, we love the Nature's Plus A microbiome one is really really good as well Uh, any of those will do and then in terms of diet just um, when you've got diverticulitis definitely liquid is better anything that takes the pressure off the digestion but on the whole just make sure you're getting plenty fibre porridge for breakfast for soluble fibre apples and pears kiwis are great rhubarb and then switch to everything brown
3: okay Yvonne says any suggestions please for a lady in her mid-60s with thinning and wispy hair
1: Okay. Now, um, that's the worst, Patricia. Our crowning glory is so important to women. So I think if it's thinning on the scalp, the best thing to do is to take the Norcran. It's um, it's expensive, but I've taken it myself when my hair was thinning and it worked for me and it works well for a lot of our customers. It's spelled N-O-U-R-K-R-I-N and you'll need to take it for at least three months. And it's a type of marine protein. It's They've patented it. Is, so it, that's why it's expensive and it, it can kick start the hairs that have gone into a dormant non-growing phase back into a growing phase as well so definitely the best thing if you notice it's thinning on your scalp and then if it's just the quality of your hair so if you notice it's just thin and limp I always think biotin is the best for that and Salgar do a lovely high strength biotin 5000 milligrams, and just take it again for about 3 months and that
5: should strengthen it up
3: Okay, and Anne says, uh, what is apple cider vinegar good for? Anne says, I'm getting pains in my hands and I'm wondering would taking apple cider vinegar on a daily basis, would it help in any way?
1: So, Patricia, I've heard apple cider vinegar cure everything except death, really. Um, There's so many different claims for what it can do for you. But from a scientific perspective, there's two things that I would agree it can do if it's the raw apple cider vinegar it's got lots of probiotic bacteria in there and um, and they're great for the gut and if your gut is healthy you will be healthy so that's the first thing the second thing then i think the vinegar as well is very good to help support digestion um it can help you break your food down better and it also can help acidify things like calcium and zinc and magnesium and make it easier for your body to absorb them so there are two things i would definitely say it can do other than that it's really all from what I can see as hearsay. People would say that it helps with aches and pains, that um, it helps them lose weight, um, that it keeps them from getting coughs and colds. I'm not really sure if it can actually do all of those things. So I just think that you need to be careful with it. It is vinegar. Um, if you've got any inflammation in your stomach or if you have any heartburn, it's definitely not going to be suitable. And if you are going to try it, um, get the, the, the raw version with the mother so that at least you're getting all the good bacteria. But for aches and pains in the hands, I'd recommend better natural anti-inflammatories like turmeric. Ginger is very good as a natural anti-inflammatory. Boswellia, that comes from frankincense. Any of those would work better. Devil's Claw is another lovely one as well. For especially for pains in the hands and uh, the, the smaller joints. So any of those would probably work better than apple cider vinegar.
3: Okay. Hi, um, Annalise, I've got a friend who is swearing by a mushroom supplement for sleep. Does Annalise know anything about this particular supplement or other supplements to help with sleep?
1: So, okay, mushrooms. I'm a big fan of mushrooms, Patricia. They've actually been used by the Chinese for over 2,000 years as medicine. Um, they are amazing, and I've seen amazing results with them. Like, for example, reishi mushroom is one of the most powerful antiviral mushrooms. They've actually started studying it now to help with um, with herpes, genital herpes, because it seems to work better with less side effects than the antiviral medications that they put people on. So I'm a great believer, but I can't say I've ever heard that it would work for sleeping. Great for the gut, great for the immune system, helps your body fight cancer, fight viruses, fight bacteria, very good for healing anything in the gut, very supportive of good bacteria in the gut. So all of those reasons uh, mushrooms are great, I'm not sure for sleep. Now, it could be there are certain drinks that are on the market now at the moment that have mushrooms added into them. So maybe that could be something that she was talking about, and it might be what's in the drink. So normally what you take for sleep, you try valerian which is great for kind of relaxing. That's a great herb. It's great for relaxing muscles as well. So if you're a bit tense going to bed, it's lovely. L-theanine is another lovely one to kind of promote very calm brain. All the natural remedies, they don't actually knock you out. What they do really is they just make you feel very relaxed. So the ones that work well here in the shop, the Dr. Vogel Valerian, of course, is, is a popular one. And then there's one by a company called NHP natural health practice and actually my own fella and my sister take this as well because it works really really well it's called advanced sleep support and you take it for about an hour before you go to bed and you do get a much deeper sleep so i've been reported from them
3: okay so there, there are a lot of natural uh, supplements out there uh, what causes a blocked ear says this listener uh, and if you're going to say it's earwax which the listener thinks it is how do you remove earwax yeah, so I'd say that's probably the
1: first thing. Hopefully, it is just ear wax. Um, you can go to the doctor; they will syringe it, or you can get an ear candle from the health store. And an ear candle works on the basis that you—it's you, made from wax. You, you light it and you put it in, and it forms a kind of a vacuum with gentle heat that pulls the wax up and out. Very, very, very effective. The candle, the ear candles, can be a little bit daunting for people when you're using them for the first time. So get somebody to help you. But actually, after that, you won't look back. Um, They work really, really well, especially as well if you've got any um, sore ear infection, if there's a mucus buildup, they're very soothing for that as well. The second reason you could have um, a blocked ear could be mucus behind the ear. And the best herb for that is a herb called Plantago, which is spelled P-L-A-N-T-A-G-O. Oh, and it's great for kids if they're at their pulling at their ears.
3: Okay, listen, we'll leave it there and you'll put up all of the information on your website this afternoon as heard on the radio, healthtubstore.com. Thanks, Annalise. Thanks. Have a lovely week. You. Bye-bye. So that's where I leave you for today. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. Nick Richards is with you for the afternoon. We'll talk to you tomorrow with 10 I'm the Namper Messenger regular Tuesday July 3.
4: with WCAGAN Insurance's McCroom. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. cmig.ie.